The northern confederacy is described in Ezekiel 38, verses 8 and 9. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. The Antichrist will be troubled by tidings out of the east and out of the north. With his federation of ten nations, he will meet the northern confederacy with Gog as their head in the valley of Esdraelon. Both of these confederations will seek the wealth of Palestine. The Antichrist will be the conqueror. He will become the head of the armies of all nations. This will lead him to the battle of Armageddon, to war against God's chosen people, the Jews. This war, therefore, will be fought by the combined armies of the Gentile nations under the leadership of the Antichrist against the Jews. Then will occur the revelation of Jesus Christ as the rider of the white horse from heaven. The result of Christ coming on his white horse from heaven to battle against the Antichrist will be that the hosts of the Antichrist will be slaughtered in great numbers. The dead will be buried in the valley of Himmon Gog. The house of Israel will be seven months burying the dead of the armies of the Antichrist. Thus will end the power of the Antichrist, the king of the revived Roman Empire. Christ will come with all his hosts of heaven at the time of his revelation to the Mount of Olives to put a stop to the work of the Antichrist, to judge the nations, and to usher in his kingdom. A quote from God's Prophetic Plan, pages 104 to 106. We have no need to enter into a detailed refutation of such an elaborate theory. It is a fundamental rule of exegesis that every passage must be understood in the light of its context. Yet not one single reference in Daniel or Ezekiel or Paul or the book of Revelation which the premillennialists allege refers to the Antichrist is connected in any way with the verses in the epistles of John that mention Antichrist. All is based on inference. Let the reader search for himself and see how far-fetched that connection is. We make bold to say that this picture of Antichrist as a world ruler who persecutes the Jews during an alleged tribulation period and then leads the armies of the Gentiles against the Jews in Palestine is pure fiction without so much as one clear supporting verse in all scripture. Nor do we find any adequate support for the view generally accepted by amillennialists and some postmillennialists that the Antichrist will emerge as a powerful political or religious leader shortly before the coming of Christ. That too impresses us as built largely on inference and as in fact contrary to other scriptures which teaches the future glorious state of the church and its victorious sweep before the end comes. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 The Man of Sin The verse most often cited as teaching that an Antichrist is to appear shortly before the end is Second Corinthians 2 verse 3. This verse speaks of a man of sin and of a falling away or apostasy and with its context reads as follows. Now we beseech you, brethren, touching the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, to the end that ye be not quickly shaken from your mind, nor yet be troubled, either by spirit or by word or by epistle as from us, as that the day of the Lord is just at hand. Let no man beguile you in any wise, 
For it will not be, except the falling away come first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, he that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Remember ye not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know that which restraineth, to the end that he may be revealed in his own season. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work, only there is one that restraineth now, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall be revealed the lawless one, whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming, even he whose coming is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceit of unrighteousness for them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they should be saved. Verses 1-10 through 10. There have been many attempts down through the ages to identify the man of sin or the Antichrist. The early Christians believed him to be the persecuting Roman emperor. It was noted by the Christians that the name Nero, Neron Kisar, written in Hebrew letters, had the numerical value of 666. See Revelation 13 verse 8. Muhammad, the false prophet, or his successors in the Caliphate, were thought to be the Antichrist by some. The Reformers believed that both of these prophecies, John's references to the Antichrist and Paul's references to the man of sin, were fulfilled in the Roman Pope, or in the succession of the Popes, and that the falling away found its fulfillment in the corrupt condition of the medieval church. Luther publicly burned the Pope's decree of excommunication, calling it the execrable bull of Antichrist. The Reformers wrote this view into their commentaries and creeds. Strengthening this view was the fact that the Latin title of the Pope, Vicarius Filii Dei, Vicar of the Son of God, had the numerical value of 666. Intriguing though this scheme may be, we do not believe that the papacy is the specific agency intended by either John or Paul. We are told that the man of sin opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Verse 4 He therefore is not a religious figure at all. He is not only opposed to the true God, but to every form of true worship and even to the idea of God. He is notoriously anti-religious. This cannot be said of the Pope of Rome or of the succession of the Popes, for they very definitely have been religious figures. There have been still other candidates for the title of Antichrist or Man of Sin. Napoleon, the tyrant, the scourge of Europe, was thought by some in his day to be the one spoken of. At the time of the First World War, some leveled this charge against the Kaiser. Between the wars and during the first part of the Second World War, Mussolini and his restored Roman Empire was set forth by many as a likely candidate for this role. Numerous articles were written and sermons preached to that effect. Typical of those who advocated this view was Dr. John R. Rice, who in a book, Worldwide War and the Bible, published in 1940, in answer to the question, Is Mussolini the Antichrist? said, He may be. I know of no reason why he should not fit the description of this terrible man of sin. 
He is an Italian. He is evidently an atheist. He once debated for atheism. He has the ruthless disposition, the ruling genius. He has an obsession to restore the Roman Empire. Furthermore, he is already in power in Rome. If Christ called his saints today, and if every saved person should be taken out to meet Christ, then soon Mussolini might have a mandate over Palestine, make the promised treaty with the Jews, and in three and one-half years attain worldwide power, and then reign another three and one-half years, forty-two months, over the whole world. Mussolini is somewhat past fifty, neither too young nor too old for the brief but meteoric rule of the terrible man of sin. The man of sin must be a ruler in Rome, and Mussolini might be the man. End of quote. It was particularly this latter fact that Mussolini was a Roman that misled many premillennialists, for they insist that the Antichrist, when he comes, will be a ruler in Rome. But since his sudden and ignominious fall, we hear nothing more about Mussolini and his restored Roman Empire. It should also be clear that the man of sin is not Satan, for while Paul's description breathes a satanic atmosphere, it is said that his coming is according to the working of Satan. That is, he is like Satan, but he is not Satan. The usual amillennial view identifies the man of sin and the Antichrist, and holds further that the rise of the Antichrist and an apostasy immediately precede the return of Christ. Hamilton says concerning Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, This declares that there will be a falling away, that the man of sin will arise, and that he will deceive the unbelievers before the coming of Christ, to destroy him with the breath of his mouth. The world will not be converted before the coming of Christ, but on the contrary there will be a great apostasy before the coming of Christ. A quote from the Basis of Millennial Faith, page 105. It should be clear, however, that Paul was not writing about a personage and event of the remote future, some abstract figure who would not manifest himself until nineteen or more centuries later, and who therefore could not have been of any interest to the hard-pressed Christians in the early church. Rather, he was writing of a person and an event of his day, for he says, The mystery of lawlessness doth already work. Verse 7 In other words, the apostasy was happening then. Similarly, his statement that he sitteth in the temple of God, sitting himself forth as God, verse 4, contemplates the temple was still standing and therefore prior to its fall in 70 A.D. The best opinion, we believe, identifies the man of sin with the Roman emperor, or the line of emperors of that time. The apostasy or falling away, verse 3, was then the Jewish apostasy, which would not reach its climax until the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersal of the Jewish people. The Jews had rejected their Messiah, they had crucified the Lord of glory, and now they were persecuting his followers to the death. This view as regards the apostasy is confirmed by Paul himself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where he says that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out us, and please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. And then he adds, but wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. In other words, Judaism was then, as it has been in every age since, bitterly anti-Christian. It is contrary to God's plan and purpose, and so is subject to his wrath. 
Probably the most accurate analysis of these expressions, the man of sin and the falling away or apostasy, is that given by Dr. Warfield. He says, We cannot fail to observe that in his description of the man of sin, the apostle has a contemporary or nearly contemporary in mind. The withholding power is already present. Although the man of sin is not yet revealed, as a mystery his essential lawlessness is already working, only until the present restrainer is removed from the midst. He expects him to sit in the temple of God, which perhaps most naturally refers to the literal temple in Jerusalem. And if we compare the description which the apostle gives of him with our Lord's address on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, to which Paul makes obvious allusion, it becomes at once in the highest degree probable that in the words, he that exalteth himself against all that is called God, or is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the sanctuary of God, showing himself that he is God, Paul can have nothing else in view than what our Lord described as the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Matthew 24:15. And this our Lord connects immediately with the beleaguering of Jerusalem. See also Luke 21:20. This obvious parallel, however, not only places the revelation of the man of sin in the near future, but goes far toward leading us to his exact identification. Our Lord's words not only connect him with the siege of Jerusalem, but place him distinctly among the besiegers and led by the implication of the original setting of the phrase in Daniel 11.36, which Paul uses, we cannot go far wrong in identifying him with the Roman emperor. Whether a single emperor was thought of, or the line of emperors, is a more difficult question. The latter hypothesis will best satisfy the conditions of the problem, and we believe that the line of emperors, considered as the embodiment of persecuting power, is the revelation of iniquity hidden under the name of the man of sin. With this is connected in the description certain other traits of Roman imperialism, more especially the rage for deification, which in the person of Caligula had already given a foretaste of what was to come. It was Nero then, the first persecutor of the church, and Vespasian, the miracle worker, and Titus, who introduced his divine self and his idolatrous insignia into the Holy of Holies, perhaps with a direct anti-Christian intent, and Domitian, and the whole line of human monsters whom the world was worshipping as gods, on which, as a nerve cord of evil, these hideous ganglia gathered, these and such as these it was that Paul had in mind when he penned this hideous description of the son of perdition, every item of which was fulfilled in the terrible story of the emperors of Rome. The restraining power on this hypothesis appears to be the Jewish state, for the continued existence of the Jewish state was both graciously and naturally a protection to Christianity, and hence a restraint on the revelation of the persecuting power. Graciously it was God's plan to develop Christianity under the protection of Judaism for a short set time, with the double purpose of keeping the door of salvation open to the Jews until all of their elect of that generation should be gathered in and the apostasy of the nation should be rendered doubly and trebly without excuse, and of hiding the tender infancy of the church within the canopy of a protecting sheath until it should grow strong enough to withstand all storms. 
Naturally, the effect of the continuance of Judaism was to conceal Christianity from notice through a confusion of it with Judaism, to save it thus from being declared an illicit religion, and to enable it to grow strong under the protection accorded Jewish worship. So soon as the Jewish apostasy was complete and Jerusalem given over to the Gentiles, God deserting the temple which was no longer his temple to the fury of the enemies of those who were now his enemies, the separation of Christianity from Judaism which had already begun became evident to every eye. The conflict between the new faith and heathenism culminating in and now alive almost only in the emperor worship became intense and the persecuting power of the empire was inevitably let loose. Thus the continued existence of Judaism was in the truest sense a restraint on the persecution of Christians, and its destruction gave the signal for the lawless one to be revealed in his time. Finally, in this interpretation, the apostasy is obviously the great apostasy of the Jews, gradually filling up all these years and hastening to its completion in their destruction. That the Apostle certainly had this rapidly completing apostasy in his mind in the severe arraignment that he makes of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 14 through 16, which reached its climax in the declaration that they were continually filling up more and more full the measure of their sins, until already the measure of God's wrath was prematurely filled up against them and was hanging over them like some laden thundercloud ready to burst and overwhelm them adds an additional reason for supposing his reference to be to this apostasy, above all others, the apostasy in this passage. As a matter of mere fact, the growing apostasy of the Jews was completed. The abomination of desolation had been set up in the sanctuary. Jerusalem and the temple and the whole Jewish state was in ruins. Christianity stood naked before her enemies, and the persecuting sword of Divus Caesar was unsheathed and Paul had himself felt its keenness. All the prophecy had been fulfilled before two decades had been passed away. A quote from Biblical and Theological Studies, page 472-475. to One further point needs to be cleared up. After saying that the mystery of lawlessness doth already work, only there is one that restraineth now until he is taken out of the way, Paul adds, And then shall be revealed the lawless one, whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming. Verse 8 We believe that this refers not to Christ's final coming, as so many assume, but to his coming in judgment on the Roman emperor or on the line of emperors in the same way that he came in judgment on Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God's judgment on Egypt was foretold in these words. Behold, Jehovah rideth upon a swift cloud, and cometh into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall tremble at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Isaiah 19, verse 1 And his judgment on Samaria and Jerusalem was foretold in similar language. For behold, Jehovah cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Micah 1 verse 3 Paul was a student of the Old Testament and was quite familiar with its prophetic phraseology. 
Hence it should not be thought strange that he should sometimes express himself in their spirit and style, as present-day speakers sometimes employ the spirit and style of the New Testament to express their messages. When he says that the Lord Jesus will bring to naught the lawless one by the brightness of his coming, anyone who was well versed in Old Testament prophecy will not understand him as having reference to the second coming of Christ, but rather as predicting in figurative language the Lord's coming in judgment on the lawless person. The Old Testament has numerous such phrases in its prophetic portions. Hence the present-day premillennial interpretation, and to a lesser extent the amillennial interpretation, of John's references to Antichrist and Paul's brief reference to a man of sin, is a typical example of how an obscure reference can be blown up to fantastic proportions and given an interpretation that misses the writer's meaning completely. John's references to Antichrist, not always with clear indication as to whether he had in mind a personal or an impersonal agency, and his statement that even now have there arisen many Antichrists, shows how scanty is the scriptural evidence for this alleged evil character of the end time. We are convinced that nothing in any one of John's references requires the embodiment of this anti-Christian influence in a single individual, but rather that the term is applied to false teachers who denied the Incarnation. Similarly, we are convinced that Paul's statement that the mystery of lawlessness doth already work indicates quite clearly that he was writing of something that related to the problems of his day, not about some mythical figure of the future who, after a lapse of 19 centuries, still has not appeared, and the mention of whose appearance, therefore, could have had no conceivable value for the people to whom he was writing. The Christians in the early church needed practical information and encouragement that would prepare them for the fiery trials and suffering that were just ahead. A careful reading of Paul's words should convince an open-minded Bible student that the Antichrist and the apostasy are long since past, Few seem to realize how frail is the foundation on which their doctrine of an Antichrist rests. This, incidentally, if it is the true interpretation, as we believe it is, clears another important obstacle out of the way for the postmillennial doctrine that the world is to be converted to Christianity before the world comes, and that when Christ returns, he comes to a world in which his cause has already been magnificently victorious. Chapter 6, page 219 The Kingdom Postponement Theory We have said earlier that one of the distinctive doctrines of dispensationalism, as contrasted with historic premillennialism, is that it holds that Christ at his first advent intended to establish an earthly kingdom with himself as king and with the Jews in favored positions, but that after he had preached the gospel of the kingdom during most of his public ministry, the Jews rejected the kingdom as he had offered it to them, and so made necessary its postponement until his second coming, and that in the meantime, as an interlude between the two phases of the kingdom, he established the church. We also pointed out that according to this theory, the church was not foreseen nor predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and that it was first revealed to the Apostle Paul. It is an integral part of this theory that prophetic time, that is, time during which the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled, cease to run with the rejection of the king. Says one writer, The prophetic clock stopped at Calvary. Not one tick has been heard since. 
He adds further that from the moment Christ bowed his head and yielded up his spirit to the Father, all the glories of the kingdom spoken of by Old Testament seers and prophets have been held in abeyance. A quote from Dr. H.A. Ironside, for a number of years, pastor of Moody Memorial Church, Chicago. The quote is taken from his book, The Mysteries of God, page 54. And Dr. Schofield says, When Christ appeared to the Jewish people, the next thing in the order of revelation as it then stood should have been the setting up of the Davidic kingdom. In the knowledge of God, not yet disclosed, lay the rejection of the kingdom and king, the long period of the mystery form of the kingdom, the worldwide preaching of the cross, and the outcalling of the church. But this was as yet locked up in the secret counsels of God. Matthew chapter 13 verses 11 and 17 and Ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 through 10. A quote on page 998. In another connection he says, The kingdom of heaven announced as at hand by John the Baptist, by the king himself and by the twelve, and attested by mighty works, has been morally rejected. The rejected king now turns from the rejecting nation and offers not the kingdom, but rest and service to such as are conscious of need. Page 1011. And again, The kingdom in its outward form as covenanted to David and ascribed to the prophets had been rejected by the Jews so that during this present age it would not come with observation but in the hearts of men. Meantime the kingdom was actually in the midst of the Pharisees in the person of the king and his disciples. Ultimately the kingdom of heaven will come with outward show. Page 1100 We remember that Jesus said the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, Luke 17:20. But here Schofield, in effect, says, ultimately it will come with observation. The same teaching is put forth by Blackstone. He, meaning Jesus, would have set up the kingdom, but they rejected and crucified him. And again, the kingdom did come nigh when Christ came, and had they received him it would have been manifested, but now it is in abeyance or waiting until he comes again. A quote from Jesus' Coming, pages 87 and 88. In opposition to all of this, we shall undertake to prove that no earthly kingdom was offered to the Jews, that nothing in the divine plan was postponed, and that the Christian church is the fulfillment of that to which the Old Testament prophets, and indeed the entire Old Testament economy, looked forward. In the first place, it is not the New Testament dispensation of grace, but the Old Testament dispensation of law that actually was parenthetical and temporary. The promise made to Abraham, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3, as well as the earlier promises to Adam and Noah, had a universalistic tendency. This was temporarily laid aside at Sinai and the narrower form under which Israel was singled out for special favor came into being and the universalistic tendency was not again manifested until the work of Christ broke down the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile. Ritualism and legalism came to an end with the crucifixion of Christ and salvation was made equally available for all nations and races. The New Testament age or church age is therefore no parenthesis, no side issue, 
but the original divine purpose to which the Old Testament had led step by step. The dispensational theory holds that prophetic time is not counted, one, when Israel is out of the land, or two, when Israel is in apostasy. Hence we have the view that the kingdom prophecies are not being fulfilled during the church age when Israel is either out of the land or is in apostasy or both and that the church is only an interlude between a Jewish kingdom that is past and a Jewish kingdom that is future. The first advent of Christ according to this theory brought Israel up to the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. With the second advent, that is, at the rapture, prophetic time again will begin to run, and the seven weeks of the Great Tribulation will complete the 70th week. That in turn will be followed by the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom on earth. But there are no grounds either in reason or in scripture for inserting a parenthesis of many centuries duration between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy a parenthesis which strangely has already extended nearly four times as long as the entire period of the 70 weeks themselves. In this prophecy it is quite evident that the weeks refer to years. The Jews had just completed 70 years captivity in Babylon, years that had run consecutively. Daniel understood from the prophecies that the time was at an end and he besought God earnestly in prayer for their deliverance. It was revealed to him that seven times seventy were determined to complete God's dealings with Israel as a nation, for their return to their own land, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, and until Messiah should come and accomplish his work of redemption. Certainly the natural inference is that in this prophecy time runs concurrently as it does in any other prophecy. If in our present day social affairs or business contracts we attempted to insert hidden parentheses of days or months or years, we would get into trouble immediately. Suppose that a traveling companion asks me how far it is from New York to Denver, and I inform him that it is 70 years. We travel that distance and beyond, but haven't reached Denver. So he says to me, you said it was 70 miles from New York to Denver, but we have already traveled more than that, and we still haven't come to Denver. Then I explained to him, Oh, but there is a parenthesis in there of 2,000 miles that I didn't tell you about. You see, the speedometer is set so that it registers only the first 69 miles, which is country through which I enjoy traveling. Then it doesn't register again until we enter the last mile going into Denver. Or suppose that when a note comes due at the bank, I inform the banker that there is a five-year parenthesis between the dates that hasn't yet run its course. Now if we attempted such chincanery, what would be the result? Such trifling would of course be condemned as dishonest. In all of our dealings we assume that the 70th mile follows immediately after the 69th mile and that the 70th week follows immediately after the 69th week. Nowhere in scripture is a specified number of time units making up a described period of time set forth as meaning anything but continuous and consecutive time. Likewise, the seventy weeks in Daniel's prophecy are seventy links in a chain, each holding to the others a definite measure of the remaining time allotted to the nation of Israel before the coming of the Messiah. In harmony with this, in another of Daniel's prophecies, 
that in which he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. He informed the king that the great image of diverse parts that he had seen represented four successive world kingdoms that were to follow in precise order, with a fifth kingdom of a diverse kind to be set up during the days of the kings that would then be reigning, a kingdom which would increase until it filled the whole earth and which would never be destroyed. The head of gold represented the Babylonian, which was then present. The arms of silver, the Medo-Persian, the thighs of brass, that of Greece, and the legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay, the Roman. On this interpretation, the dream was chronologically complete from the Babylonian to the Roman Empire. And in the days of this last empire, the God of heaven did set up a new kingdom different from all the others, which was the church. That, historically, is exactly what happened. On the other hand, when the church age is arbitrarily inserted between the 69th and the 70th week, the last political empire and the one that God sets up are separated by a long interval of time. In that case, the events of the 70th week are left as still future, and a revived Roman Empire is needed in order to make possible the fulfillment of the prophecy. Concerning the idea that there can be such periods of time that are not counted, Dr. Alice says, According to dispensational principles, the Babylonian captivity was to an almost unique degree time out. Israel was not in the land. Israel was not governed by God. Yet this period was definitely defined prophetically as 70 years. Jeremiah 25:11. The same is true of the Egyptian bondage, which is described prophetically as 400 years. Genesis 15:17 and historically more precisely as 430 years, Exodus 12, verse 40. If this theory were correct, these should be uncounted intervals. It may also be noted that dispensationalists who endeavor to explain the 480 years between the Exodus and the beginning of the work on the temple, 1 Kings 6, verse 1, by reckoning the periods of bondage during the time of the judges as time out, do not treat the 40 years of wandering when Israel was both outside the land and rejected by God as also representing such an uncounted period. This is both inconsistent and arbitrary and it shows the weakness of the Jewish time theory. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 308. Dispensationalists hold that it was the earthly Jewish kingdom to which John the Baptist and Jesus referred when they said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means, of course, that the coming of Christ from heaven was primarily a mission to the Jews. In fact, Scopiel says this in so many words. The mission of Jesus was, primarily, to the Jews. He was made under the law and was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Page 989 Had the Jews accepted their Messiah, so the theory runs, the kingdom would have been set up in Jerusalem at that time. And since the kingdom is eternal, the cross would not have been necessary, and atonement for sin would have been made some other way, presumably through animal sacrifices as during the Old Testament kingdom. According to this view, Christ's atonement for the sins of the world became necessary only because his original plan miscarried. The primary purpose of Christ to his first coming then, according to dispensationalism, 
was to fulfill the glowing predictions of the prophets concerning the future rule of the house of David. The necessary prerequisite, however, for the establishment of the kingdom in the preaching of John the Baptist and in that of Jesus was repentance. But this the Jews refused. Moreover, they not only refused to repent, but actually accused Christ of being in league with the devil. With the kingdom that he sought to establish thus rejected, Christ decided to postpone its establishment until his second coming, and instead founded the church as an institution which through the intervening period would gather both Jews and Gentiles into the heavenly body. Schofield even points out what he terms the pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus, which he says is Matthew 11:28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He affirms that at that point the kingdom is taken from Israel nationally and given to the Gentiles, page 1029, and that the public entry into Jerusalem, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, was the king's final and official offer of himself to the Jewish nation, page 1028. The kingdom thus made way for the church, which was a distinct and separate entity, which can never be merged with the kingdom, neither in time nor in eternity. And the message is no longer the gospel of the kingdom, but the gospel of the grace of God. Of this church, Christ is said to be not the king, but the divine head. Thus a new institution of which the prophets had not spoken, and of which they knew nothing, came into being. The church corporately, says Schofield, is not in the vision of the Old Testament prophets. Corporately means as a body. A quote on page 711. The complete refutation of this view, however, is found in Old Testament prophecy itself, which foretold in detail the suffering and crucifixion and death of the Messiah. See particularly Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Furthermore, the suffering and death of the Messiah and the purely substitutionary nature of that sacrifice was the essential lesson foretold and taught daily under the Levitical law in the sacrifice of the Lamb, in which the life of an innocent and faultless victim was given in place of that of the sinner. There can be no getting around the fact that this was consistently held before the people as God's method of redemption. Furthermore, the idea that the divine plan could have been to any degree whatever defeated and thwarted by evil men is utterly contrary to what the Bible teaches concerning the sovereignty of God. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be restrained. Job 42 verse 2 The counsel of Jehovah standeth fast forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33, 11 Jehovah of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 14, 24 In whom we were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 All authority hath been given unto me, Christ, in heaven and on earth. Matthew 
Many more verses of similar import could be cited. How ridiculous then to think that puny sinful man can rise up against God and compel him to change his ideas. The idea that unregenerate man can frustrate the purposes of God is so contrary to clear scripture teaching and to all right ideas of God that it is almost unbelievable that it could be seriously put forth by any who claim to be students of the word. We have mentioned earlier that opposition to premillennialism has come mainly from theologians in the Reformed churches. It is primarily this fact that sinful man cannot thwart the plans of Almighty God that makes premillennialism, particularly in its dispensational form, so unacceptable to Reformed theology. Had Christ offered the Jews a political kingdom in the pomp and glory of David and Solomon, as dispensationalism affirms that he did, they most certainly would have accepted and would have rallied to his standard. That was the very thing they wanted and were expecting. But that is what he clearly refused to offer. After the feeding of the 5,000, great numbers of people came to him for this very purpose. But we read, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again into the mountain himself alone. John 6:15. And the following day, after the multitude had followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he declared to them plainly that he was not a political messiah or miracle bread king, but a spiritual ruler, the messiah who had come down from heaven to give his life for the world. John 6, verses 22 through 71. Interpreting the promised Davidic kingdom in earthly, carnal, and materialistic terms, they rejected the true Davidic kingdom which Jesus offered them, which was spiritual and universal, and they were greatly offended because he so pointedly refused to give them the kind of kingdom that they wanted. That the kingdom that Jesus preached is a present reality, the outward manifestation of which is the church, and that Christ is now reigning on David's throne, is taught in Peter's great Pentecostal sermon. There he declared, Brethren, I say unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us unto this day. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, 
in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.